It's hard to say good evening when a school in this country is being described by local authorities as a, quote, fairly large crime scene. That's where we begin tonight, at yet another school where kids died. This time, the Detroit area, Oxford High School, Oakland County, Michigan. At least three students killed by gunfire, eight other people hurt, a 15-year-old boy in custody. According to the Gun Violence Archive, this is the 651st mass shooting in this country this year. They define mass shootings as four or more people killed or wounded, not including the shooter. And the fact that there even is such a thing as a gun violence archive certainly says a lot, mostly obscene. But as tempting as it always is to simply be numb to it all, try to think of all the kids who don't have that option tonight as they try to cope with what they have gone through. There isn't enough numbness in the world to blur the memories that they now have or blunt the grieving they've yet to go through or erase even a second of what even the lucky ones endured today. Reporting from the scene for us tonight, Stephanie Parkinson from local CNN affiliate WEYI. Stephanie, what's the latest? We know right now that 11 people were shot today, and of those, um, three of them passed away, 16-year-old male, a 14-year-old female, and 17-year-old female, all killed inside Oxford High School in Oakland County, Michigan today. Now, we don't have their identities yet. They're still waiting to release those at this time. What we do know about when this all happened, too, is a very quick response. We're talking within five minutes of that initial 911 call that they had that gunman in custody with police deputies here, sheriff's deputies in Oakland County. There were more than 100 though, 911 calls that came in to the police. And this 15-year-old student, we don't know too much about this student, but we know that he was a student at Oxford High School and that he was using a semi-automatic handgun today when all of this happened. Now, I did ask the Oakland County undersheriff if he legally had that handgun or if it was maybe registered to a family member. He wouldn't answer those questions yet tonight, but said obviously that's part of their investigation. He did tell us that there was a search warrant um, executed on his home home. We don't know yet what that may be revealed to them, but we're waiting for an update in the next couple of hours. Meanwhile, from those in this community in Oxford, a very small, close-knit community, they're worried, um, they're wondering, and they're worried that there were warning signs that this could have happened in their school. Um, now, the undersheriff, though, with Oakland County tells me, don't believe everything you hear or um, see, read on social media, because they're still actively investigating this. And what do we know about the, those who are injured? Right now, we do know that two of them are in surgery, um, or at least were as of about an hour ago, and there are six others who are in stable condition tonight. We don't really have much more detail than that at this time. And is the suspect cooperating with police, did they say? Not really. Um, He won't speak to them right now. So as far as the investigation goes, he's not. However, he didn't put up a fight or much of one at all when they confronted him inside the school when he had the weapon. So it was relatively easy, it sounds like, to take him into custody earlier today. We don't know if he had any more ammunition, though, at that time. They're not sure if that prevented anything more from happening inside the school or you know, if he was kind of done with what he set out to do or, or not. We're still waiting for more of that kind of information to come in, but he's not talking. And his parents, uh, investigators spoke with his parents today, and they said that they're hiring an attorney and they don't want him to talk either. Obviously, being a minor, they need their permission, the parents' permission to even speak with him. Mm. So the undersheriff is hoping something might change in the coming hours or days, but for now, he's not talking. And, and Stephanie, I just want to go back to something you said right in the beginning, that from the first 911 call to the uh, him being taken into custody, you said that was a five-minute time frame? 
That was. And part of the reason for that is there's a school resource officer in this school in Oxford. And so that resource officer was on site, um, I believe, at the time. That resource officer was part of the arrest there. But there was another officer there. So that does mean that there was still a quick response time to get more officers there to back that school Mm. resource officer up. Wow, it's fascinating. Stephanie uh, Parkinson, I appreciate the reporting. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Shortly before airtime, I spoke with one of the students uh, who uh, was in uh, his classroom. Shots rang out. 17-year-old senior named Aiden Page. Aiden, thank you so much for, for being with us. I understand you were in your classroom right before class began when, when you heard something. What happened? Um, we heard two gunshots, and then after that... Um, my teacher ran to the room, locked it, we barricaded, and then we covered the head windows and hid. Did, did you know they were gunshots right away? Um, I just heard two bangs, and then I saw my teacher um, run into the room, locked down, and I was like, okay, this is a shooter. So your teacher really reacted very quickly um, what, what happened? Guys, I understand there was another teacher in the room as well. Yes. Another teacher uh, entered just to grab some hand sanitizer real quickly. And then the shots came off and then she ran in. And I understand she called to her classroom because she couldn't get back to her classroom. What happened with that? Um, basically, she was like, can anybody does anybody have a freshman in my class? And then a student did, and then she used her phone to call him. So she got the, the phone number of a freshman in her class from a student in your class. Um, and, yeah. she, and then she was, what, trying to give instructions to her class about what to do? Um, the class basically went into the lockdown already. Um, there was a student injured, and she was have instructing them and supporting them as well. So a student had been, had, had been shot in that classroom? Yes, he was shot in the leg. Wow. And how long were you in lockdown for? Did you hear anything while you were in lockdown? Um, there was general announcements being made throughout, and we were locked down for about an hour. So what, the, the two shots that you heard, or what you believe were shots, is that the only sound of gunfire that you heard? Um, there may have been other gunfire, though those were the most memorable to me. And we're looking at a picture that you took of what looks like a bullet hole with a lot of chairs piled mm-hmm. up. What is that image of? Um, there was, we made this barricade, and there was a bullet hole that shot through our door. So the sh- shooter was close enough to actually shoot into your classroom through, uh, through the door? Uh, yes. Wow. You know, when, when you say you went into lockdown, what actually did you do? I mean, obviously you're in a classroom, and I know you've had training on, on this. Do you, do you try to hide in different places? Do you try to – what's the instruction? Basically, we lock the door. We have this jammer called a night lock. We barricade it as best as we can, and then we try to hide. And I understand students. some students were trying to arm themselves with whatever they could find? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we grabbed calculators, we grabbed scissors, and 
just in case of the shooter guy and and we had to wow. attack them i i can't imagine being in that situation for i think you said it was like an hour or so standing there with a calculator thinking you might try to use that as a weapon or a scissors or a book. Um, how were the other students reacting? Um, some were crying. Um, some were trying to support others. Um, others were trying to come up with some ideas to possibly counter them just in case. And I know you've had training on this, uh, but obviously when it actually happens, it's, you know, there's nothing that can really prepare you for it. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like for you? Uh, it was insane. Um, the very first thing is, in my head was, this is actually happening. I'm going to text my family, say I love them, just in case if I were to die and then after everything kind of calmed down for a second i was able to like get my breath and kind of rationalize things Mm. and and looking on it now i mean it it must seem what does it seem like now does it seem just as insane yeah it's definitely going to be weird coming back especially with knowing that people have been injured and that there are a few students who have died as well. Well, Aiden, I, I'm, I'm so sorry for what you and your other, the other students went through, and, and I'm, I'm glad you're with your family, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to mm-hmm. us. Thank you. Senior in high school dealing with this. Perspective now from CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, also CNN National Security Analyst and former Assistant DHS Secretary Juliet Kayyem. Andrew, you and I sadly have talked about uh, these sh- school shootings many times, too many times before. The FBI has looked closely, has done studies of all the school shootings, and a lot has been learned about that. The quick reaction time, it seems like today, uh, may have been a result of what was learned from Columbine and others. When you hear the account from that student, Aiden, what stands out to you? Well, as the as the father of a 17 year old senior in high school, I mean, it's it's absolutely chilling, and I it you know it it ha- it it, um, it forces me as I hope it does every American to ask the fundamental question of why are we putting our kids in the firing line when they go to school? Why? What is it about our country? that we are awash in guns. And I say that as a gun owner, as someone who carried a gun for 21 years as a law enforcement officer, but the fact is that our situation in this country, firearms is out of control. And the perfect uh, evidence of that is that our children are at risk when they go to school. It's just uh, head spinning, it really is. Juliet, it's also, I mean, obviously, look, we've known about you know schools having sh- active shooter training for, for years now. Uh, I've gone to schools where it's done to see how it's, how it's done up close. Just the normalness of this is so yeah. extraordinary. That young man had had multiple trainings and they instantly knew what to do. Right. And they took their positions and they grabbed calculators and scissors and whatever else they could with the knowledge that they might have to fight if the, the shooter came in. 
with staplers, right? I mean, that is, that's where we are. We've created this narrative that somehow we're equipping ourselves to deal with uh, uh, these school shootings. So we first tell kids, you know, uh, run or hide or fight in, in that order. Well, they did everything right today and still three kids die. And then we say, uh, well, let's just train our law enforcement and we'll have all these drills and make sure law enforcement can get there. Well, last count, 25 agencies and 60 ambulances showed up at the school and still three teenagers died. And then we say, oh, let's put um, armed guards in these high schools. Well, this high school had one there and he probably uh, uh, did a lot of good in terms of stopping the violence. Still not enough. I mean, this is you know, what, what you know, let, let's keep them home. Like, you know, this is this the next solution. And so I think just if we just realize now that that five minutes, everything going right and we've in the in terms of response, and we still have three teenagers dead, five uh, injured, uh, um, and uh, and uh, one gun and one suspect, and that's all it took. So my frustration uh, is uh, is um, uh, McCabe's frustration as well. I mean, this is you know this we, we can't do anything more at this stage. Well, also Andrew, I mean, you look at again. I go back to that FBI famous FBI report, and and I don't have it in front of me. I haven't read it in a, in a couple of months, but as I remember. All that most deaths in in all of these shootings take place within the first several minutes. I mean, the the killings take place immediately. That's why a quick reaction from police is so essential. But as Julia said, I mean, five minutes from the time the nine one one call goes in to the time of the apprehension, that's incredibly fast, and yet all the lives have already been lost. Every one of these incidents, Anderson, we study and we learn and we get better, right? So uh, Virginia Tech years ago f- pushed the this issue of uh, getting the first responders to actually enter the building with long guns to be able to fight back, that sort of thing. Our folks in the FBI Critical Incident Response Group, along with their colleagues at DHS, were instrumental in developing the training that's now been pushed out hundreds of thousands of places across the country. The reactions of people, of victims are better. The response of law enforcement is better, but it is never going to be fast enough to prevent this from happening. And as long as guns are readily available to people like, you know, children at home to use them to kill themselves or others or or young, uh, emotionally uh, uh, challenged uh, young adults who go into high school and bring something like that into high school, you can't, uh, there's, there's no way to stop that with training uh, or prevention. It's just, um, you're always behind the curve. Juliet, I mean, the school superintendent said there are no metal detectors in the school. I mean, is there evidence that security measures like metal detectors or d- deter shooters? Uh, they might, but if a determined shooter would have would have been out in the playground or the parking lot and then somehow gotten into the uh, uh, into the building, so a determined shooter is is not uh, going to be stopped uh, by this. Our understanding, you know, right now, or at least with the questions that we have, is why did he stop shooting? Was it because uh, the the resource officer, the, the the police resource officer, confronted him? Was there something wrong with the gun? Uh, did he did he run out of bullets? That's going to be important in terms of uh, of sort of you know, what happened in that moment. The other question I have is just how, how does he get possession of this gun? The parents are likely keeping quiet as well. Was it a family gun? Uh, all of those are, are, are going to come to to bear. But once again, you, you yeah, so you put up the metal detectors. So now we have a parking lot. So then you put up a wall around the parking lot and then, you know, okay, well, then a determined killer with a gun that can kill or harm uh, eight or nine people in five minutes is not going to be dissuaded by, by a metal detector. So it's, mm. it's both the motivation, 
but it's also the access and and both, right? All of the above at this stage. Yeah, Julia Kaim, Andrew McCabe, I appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, we have breaking news, some potentially promising remarks by Israel's health minister about how current COVID vaccines may help protect against the, uh, uh, the Omicron variant. And just when you thought things couldn't get worse on Capitol Hill, Republican Congresswoman is now under attack just because she called out another Congresswoman's bigotry. We're keeping them honest ahead. Well, some potentially good news for the fight against the Omicron variant. Tonight, the Israeli health minister said, quote, indications show that people who have received the coronavirus vaccine booster are protected, uh, in the health minister's word, against the new Omicron variant. Now, the health minister didn't offer any specifics beyond that, but said they'd have more information in the coming days. That comes on the heels of a South African doctor telling CNN's John Berman on New Day this morning that the majority of cases of the variant that she has seen have been mild. Also, at a White House briefing today, the director of the CDC announced it's expanding surveillance at four major international airports as the number of countries detecting the variant climbs to 20. This is we're learning about possible new testing requirements for travelers entering the U.S. Our chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, joins us now with the latest. So what, what about these new testing requirements? So what this would essentially do, and we should note, no final decisions have been made, but would shorten the time period in which you can be tested before you return or get on a flight coming to the United States, regardless if you're a U.S. citizen or someone who's just visiting the United States. Right now, for vaccinated travelers, you have to get a test about three days before your departure date. But apparently tonight, officials are deliberating, based on our reporting, shortening that time frame, Anderson, to one day before your flight, which, with, with which you would have to be tested to get back into the United States. But the the other thing they're considering that is especially noteworthy is having travelers, even U.S. citizens who are vaccinated or permanent legal residents who are vaccinated, potentially get tested again after they get back to the United States several days after their flight. Because officials have said for a few weeks now that they believe that's kind of a lapse in the rules here, which is that you could certainly get tested before you get on your flight to the United States, but maybe you develop symptoms once you're back. Maybe you start to uh, test positive once you're back in the United States. And then, of course, that causes issues. So these are things that are under consideration. They actually were deliberating about this tonight, and they haven't made any final decisions. But there is a signal we could learn more about this as soon as tomorrow, because the White House just announced that Dr. Fauci is going to be joining Jen Psaki at the press briefing tomorrow afternoon. Do officials expect the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated to change in the coming weeks? So far, no. They said right now that is not changing, that it is still fully vaccinated. If you've got that mRNA vaccine, the Moderna, the Pfizer, that it is fully vaccinated if you've gotten two shots. But of course, the question of whether or not that changes remains to be seen because you've seen the president saying, as he did this week, that if you got vaccinated before June 1, fully vaccinated, it's time for a booster shot. And you've seen other nations move to fully vaccinated means you've gotten three shots now. So whether or not that changes remains to be seen. But for now, it has not changed, Anderson. All right, Caitlin Collins, appreciate it. Thanks. Joining us now, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and the dean of Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Shish Shah. Sanjay, first of all, what do you make of the news that the Israeli health minister says there are indications, his word or their word, that people who received a vaccine booster are protected against Omicron? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds uh, optimistic, you know, and that's, that's potentially good news. These I mean, it's vague. Signals but... we heard. Yeah, I mean, we heard something similar from the South African health minister spokesperson as well, saying, you know, you got some 60 million people living in South Africa, 16 million <clears throat> roughly have been vaccinated, but the majority of who they're seeing uh, testing positive are the unvaccinated. So these are some 
early clues, and they, they have to see how this continues to, if that data continues to hold up. One thing I think is interesting, Anderson, if you look at the trajectory in South Africa uh, over the past few variants and sort of look what has happened, the original variant and then beta, delta, you see there sort of this interesting, you know, these interesting peaks. I don't know if we have the graphic, we can put it up, but basically you see a significant surge and then a period of quieting. And then another significant surge. Keep in mind, they didn't start vaccinating until February of this year, and they still have pretty low vaccination rates. This graph is really important, Anderson. It tells a story, first of all, that, that infection-acquired immunity, people who get immunity from having been previously infected, doesn't seem to last very long, hmm. three to four months. Again, you're looking at a largely unvaccinated community. But also look at the far right side of that. It's, a re- it's been a relatively quiet time in terms of covid in South Africa, it's late spring. They don't have a, um, you know, it's warmer weather. They're coming out of flu season. And now Omicron is, is sort of, uh, Omicron is sort of taking off. It's not competing against Delta, is my point. Um, so we don't really know if this is going to be more transmissible than Delta because it's not really been a foot race against Delta in South Africa. It's become dominant, but there was nothing else really there at the time. Dr. Shah, a Dutch health official said today that the Omicron variant was detected in the Netherlands a week before two flights arrived there from South Africa. Does that tell you anything about the, the timeline of the variant and the surveillance that was happening in South Africa? Yeah, I think it tells me two things. I mean, one, Anderson, it says uh, that there is good epidemiologic reasons to believe that this variant probably started circulating in people um, late October. That, by the way, would be good news. It would mean that it's not some super transmissible variant because it's been around for a little while. And the second is that it didn't originate in South Africa. And I think most of us have assumed it did not originate in South Africa. I think South Africa just has fabulous testing and surveillance, and they're very open and transparent about it. And that's why they identified it. In fact, could have started somewhere else and, and spread to South Africa. In a way, uh, Dr. Rao, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, in the Spanish, when what we know is the Spanish flu, it was reported in Spain because newspapers there weren't censored uh, during World War I, as many other countries censored their newspapers, and Spain got blamed for the flu. Absolutely. And that's why calling this a South African variant is just as wrong. Uh, it's that South Africa has done a great job identifying it. And thank goodness they've they've given us an early warning to the rest of the world to get ready for this. Uh, they should really be applauded for this. And we should not be uh, we shouldn't be putting the blame on anybody. It's not anybody's fault, but particularly not singling out South Africa in any negative way. So Sanjay, Dr. Fauci has noted that, that while some doctors in South Africa reported the patients who have tested positive from a variant have mild symptoms, it's too soon to tell what the severity of the illness will be. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it, we're watching the scientific process sort of unfold real time here, you know. So we're, we're going to have a, a better idea, um, you know, within the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, maybe even sooner than that in terms of figuring out the severity of things. You, you know, if you look at the data in, in Guatang province, uh, you know, in Johannesburg, and Dr. John makes the excellent point, no one's saying this originated there, but since we know it's there, it's become the dominant strain there Take a look at what's happened to hospitalizations over the last three weeks. Um, they've been going up. And as I mentioned, it's late spring, so this is not probably, you know, significant respiratory pathogen hospitalizations. These aren't particularly high numbers. They've been much higher at other times during the pandemic, but they have been going up. And I think that's something that people are paying attention to on the ground. Is this being driven 
by this new variant or, or something else, regardless, we'll, ha- we'll have a better idea of how, how, what type of severe illness this causes over the next several days or, or, or week or so. Dr. Jod, Caitlin Collins was just reporting that one of the things the White House is looking at, the idea is not only shortening the window in, instead of 72 hours before you fly, you have to get a test uh, to come to the United States, maybe a day. But also once you land in the U.S., you would have to get tested again at some point, I guess, in, in a number of days. Does unless someone's tested immediately at the airport by authorities, what infrastructure? Do, I mean, do we have an infrastructure in this country that would actually follow travelers two or three days later and make sure that they got tested? Who would do that? Yeah, no, not really. And trying to set set up such an infrastructure quickly would be hard. This is why I actually think people should get tested. You could you could test people at the airport with rapid antigen tests, and right. that they do that in Israel, or they used to at least. I, yeah, when I went last exactly couple of and. That would work well. I think we should consider doing that. There are other mechanisms, but asking people to go and get self-tested two, three days later, it's going to be pretty tough to enforce given the millions of people who fly into our country. Sanjay, the CDC says they're testing one out of every seven samples taken from people diagnosed with COVID in the U.S. to see what variant they have. Is that good enough? I mean, is that, it sounds like it's better than we've had in the past, or am I wrong? Uh yeah, it's much better than it's been in the past. It's probably maybe 10 times better than it was at this time last year, some 80,000 genomic sequences versus closer to 8,000. Keep in mind, though, you know, we're, we're only doing about a million and a half tests per day. That also is better. But I remember Dr. Jaw's previous home institution, Harvard, their road to recovery, talked about the necessity for tens of millions of tests per day. So uh, even on the front end, just in terms of the number of tests that we're doing in the first place is still too low. So that, you know, the surveillance has improved, but of a still small denominator overall, that may be part of the reason why we haven't found Omicron yet. It's almost certainly here in the United States, and no one should be surprised when we report that the first case has been officially uh, found, but that, that may be driving uh, why it's taking mm-hmm. so long. Uh, Sanjay, Dr. Jha, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A reminder, join us tomorrow night for a special CNN town hall on the new variant and what it means for all of us. Next up, for us tonight, two Republican congresswomen, new video surfaces of one's anti-Muslim bigotry, new attacks from the other against a colleague for simply calling it out as bigotry. Almost total silence, of course, from the Republican leadership. On a night when kids have been shot to death in their school and people around the country are concerned about inflation and the new variant and a whole host of other real issues, it seems particularly pathetic to be dealing with the continuing attention-seeking antics of the fringe wing of Republicans in Congress but they are in Congress and they are raising a lot of money. I'm talking, of course, about Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They have no real accomplishments. They've done no real work in Congress. They are in past understanding of how Washington works. They're really what would be called backbench nobodies back in the day. Yet they have managed to somehow cow most of their party, especially the leadership, into silence. For that, they've been praised by the former president, of course, and have managed to raise many times more campaign dollars than the average lawmaker. In Green's case, according to the campaign finance database, Open Secrets, roughly six times the average. So for them, this is a payday, made even fatter, no doubt, by the continuing coverage. But to the extent that it matters who speaks for one of the two major political parties in this country, they sort of can't be ignored. And once again tonight, it's people like Congresswoman Green and Boebert who are doing the talking not their leadership. Green today attacking South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace just for calling out Boebert's bigotry. Quote, Mace, she tweeted, you can, ba- you can back up off of at Lauren Boebert or just go hang with your real gal pals, the Jihad squad. You're out of your league. 
Congresswoman Mays tweeted back, calling her bat, ca- bat crap crazy, and later in the day said this. She's crazy. She's insane. She's bad for the party. And I'm not going to put up with it. And I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to be bullied. I'm not a doormat. She's being attacked, remember, and she's a Republican for doing nothing more than seeing bigotry for what it is and speaking about it. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert suggesting Congresswoman Ilan Omar might be a suicide bomber. And it certainly wasn't a one and done thing. Last night, we played remarks she made this month in which she talked about a police officer running for the elevator that she was in. Well, today, CNN's K-File uncovered this from September. One of my staffers on his first day with me got into an elevator (laughs) in the Capitol. And in in that elevator, we were joined by Ilhan Omar. Oh, well, it, it was just us three in there, and I looked over and I said, well, look at there, it's the Jihad Squad. Yeah. <laughs> mm, so funny, so great. By the way, remember in the new version of that story, there was a police officer running for the elevator and She's just embellishing as she goes along. Conservative icon Barry Goldwater once took criticism for saying extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. It makes you wonder what he'd have to say today about extremism in the defense of bigotry and silence in the face of that. Joining us now, CNN chief political correspondent Dana Bash and CNN senior political analyst Kirsten Powers, author of wonderful new book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. It's particularly apt. Uh, yeah, who could that be? <laughs> I know. So, Dana, you, you've covered Congress for a long time. There have been plenty of controversial lawmakers over the years. Does this feel like a whole other level to you? I mean, any pretense of, I mean, decency or honesty or actually even doing work for your constituents and for the country, it seems to have been abandoned by certain members who are just out to rake in more money and build a social media profile by saying outrageous things. It's so true. Every one of the members uh, of of Congress at this point could benefit from a copy of Kirsten's book. Uh, But, you know, I think the answer to your question is that Nancy Mace, I mean, she's a Republican freshman, and she did, as you said, call out the Islamophobia, the racism uh, that uh, Lauren Boebert is engaged in with regard to Ilhan Omar. And that is what raised the ire of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so she's, that's, this is a, looks like a schoolyard fight. It looks like, you know, there's a lot of immature back and forth with emojis and Forgive me, but batshit crazy is the way that she put uh, the emojis on her Twitter feed. But at the at, at its core, what Laura, what uh, Nancy Grace and uh, Nancy Grace Nancy Mace is trying to do is point out the things that you were saying, Anderson. That what Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are trying to do is raise money off of crazy remarks and do that much more than legislate. And, and there is CNN reporting, Dana, tonight, late tonight, that Kevin McCarthy summoned Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Nancy Mace for separate meetings, told them to, quote, stop it, mm-hmm. he, which suggests he's perhaps drawing some sort of false equivalency between them. It almost seems like, oh, he's stepping in to stop two women from fighting each other, which is really uh, just seems kind of odd that he's doing this moral equivalence thing. 
Does McCarthy have any real power at this point to control his conference? He, he, I mean, it seems like he's scared of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, he is that for, uh, oh, isn't. Sorry, that was for Dana. Dana. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I, I just, I'll just say, yeah, he, ha- he isn't condemning what Lauren Boebert said and uh, not really what Marjorie Taylor Greene has done in the past. You're right. I mean, it is kind of giving it an equivalency. And in some ways, the reason Nancy Mace is speaking out is, and she's doing it in a very provocative way, clearly intentionally, is because the leadership of her party in the House is not. Yeah. Kirsten, I, so I was talking to James Carville last night. He said Democrats should just ignore Bobard Omar piece of this and, and that even Omar should, you know, not be talking about punishing Congresswoman Bobert, but just saying what she's doing for people in her district, focusing on what people actually care about and leaving the fringe to, you know, do the lunatic fringe stuff um, because it takes you off message of talking about what you're actually doing in Congress for, for your constituents. Congresswoman Omar said late tonight that she wants to see appropriate action taken against Bobert. Do you think Carville's right? I don't. Yeah, I think that when somebody says the kinds of things that Lauren Boebert has said, I I think that it has to be confronted. There's not a lot that can be done about it. But the idea that this is acceptable behavior, I mean, a responsible political party, if the Republican Party was, in fact, a responsible political party, would not tolerate this kind of behavior that, frankly, I don't think it would be tolerated in most kindergartens in this country, uh, let alone, you know, in the U.S. Congress. So the 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 name calling the, um, you know, the horrible things that she has said about Ilhan Omar. I mean, she called her black hearted and evil and this demonization of the Muslims in Congress, the jihad squad. Um, You know, what is it about Republicans, their obsession with these two, it, it's it's Ilhan Omar and then, of course, Rashida Tlaib, you know, the two Muslim women, there's only two Muslim women in Congress, and somehow they're just completely obsessed with them and obsessed with, with you know, with making Islamophobic uh, comments. And I, I just don't see how you can ignore that. I don't see how you can say we have bigger things to worry about than that. Um, I heard Chris Christie earlier with Wolf saying, that Bobart was making a joke. I mean, th- that's not a joke. The fact that people laugh doesn't make it a joke. It's 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 mockery, and it's not. It, it's really it's really dangerous dangerous behavior. Well, and then I mean, she has turned it into you know I guess on whatever little lecture circuit she is on, where she's talking to people and trying to mm-hmm. you know get money from them. This is one of her laugh lines that she uses, and she has embellished this clearly uh, over the, the weeks and months that, that she's been telling it. Does Do you think Dana doing nothing, just shrugging it off as, as just two lunatics, you know, or awful people being awful, you know, I mean, it's like they're auditioning for the house, the real housewives, but they're like so low rent, they wouldn't even be able to make it on that show. There are far more talented people in that program. You're, Does that normalize this sort of thing? Andy just, Cohen. He would yeah, not hire no, them, no. You, yeah, your friend Andy Cohen would never hire them. Yeah, they're, Zero they're not chance. clever enough it, it to come up with no, a tagline. But. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it shouldn't normalize them. It's not normal. There's nothing normal about this. Uh, and the, the, the idea that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, has also said anti-Semitic things, ignorant things about 
the Holocaust about Nazis, uh, and then a, a friend of, uh, of Kevin McCarthy. Actually, well, there's that exactly. But then the notion of uh, of people wearing masks and getting vaccines is like is like Nazi Germany and, and wearing a star. I mean, yeah. that kind of thing. And then a friend of Kevin McCarthy got her into the Holocaust Museum to try to educate her. I mean, that is where we, she's a member of Congress. I mean, it, you know, it, it's important that they be educated, but that's kind of a basic. Uh, bit of knowledge that somebody should have. Yeah. So it, it shouldn't be normalized. It isn't normal. And anybody who suggests that is, uh, it, it is just, it's completely inappropriate. Yeah. Kirsten Powers, Dana Bash, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Up next, breaking news thank is you. a key figure in the former president's attempt to manipulate votes in Georgia. Talks for hours to the January 6th Select Committee. Also, some possible cooperation from another top figure in action expected tomorrow to hold a third in contempt for refusing to cooperate. This is breaking news in the January 6th investigation. CNN has learned that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger spoke at length today with the House Select Committee. He tells us the conversation lasted about four hours. He, of course, is of interest, the committee, for the conversation that he had with the former president, who asked him, you'll recall, to find him enough votes to win the state. Raffensperger refused. Also tonight, we're learning our first details about the extent of former White House Chief of Staff uh, Mark Meadows' cooperation, which was announced earlier today. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN the panel has received, in his words, probably about 6,000 emails from Meadows via his attorney. He said he couldn't specify what those emails contained and said a deposition is scheduled for next week. As for former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who's not cooperating, the House is expected to cite him tomorrow for contempt. He's pegging his resistance to the former president's appeals court case on executive privilege. Judges hearing oral arguments today showing skepticism for the former president's side. So there's certainly a lot to get to. Joining us, CNN contributor and former Nixon White House counsel, John Dean, also CNN chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Jeffrey Tubin. So Mark Meadows possibly cooperating? I mean, 6,000 documents sounds like a lot, but... It, it depends what, what they are. It? Well, there's, <clears throat> there could be like a real meeting of the minds here because Mark Meadows, unlike Steve Bannon, probably didn't want to be indicted. I mean, that, that, Bannon is like rejoicing in this experience. Right, Meadow, Meadows is like a norm, more normal person and doesn't want to be indicted. At the same time, the committee is probably saying, look, you know, we could go to court with this guy, spend months and months and maybe get something. So here they can agree on production that's probably not everything the committee wants, but better than nothing. But is, I mean, it could also be the Meadows is trying to have it both ways. I mean, he's clearly, I mean, the guy needs to make a living, I assume. I don't know how right. wealthy he is, but he wants to stay in Trump's favor. He wants to stay in Trump world because that, I guess, is where the lecture money is. And he wants to stay in the former president's good graces. So, I mean, how will we know what level of cooperation there really is? We'll know because the committee will ask him questions next week and we'll see how many he answers and on what subjects. And, and the committee will examine all these emails and perhaps other documents he produced. And we'll see if they're grocery lists or they are actually stuff, stuff that relates to January 6th. So we'll know. And, and the committee will not simply roll over on issues that they don't, you know, that, that, that he, doesn't, that want he refu- doesn't want to talk about. And we'll see if there is any give and take there. But, you know, I, I think the committee recognizes that, you know, anytime they go to court, you're talking about months right. and they don't have months. John, are you are there any circumstances under which you see Mark Meadows being a, a John Dean level bombshell witness for this committee? <laughs> I think we'd, he'd have telegraphed that. I think we'd have had some sign. I don't think this is a break with Trump at all. I think he's very smart. He's a 
trained as an attorney. Uh, he knows his way around Congress. I think he thinks he can get in that witness chair where there are no rules on how long he can answer or how uh, he does answer, and he thinks he can probably filibuster a lot of it and uh, work his way through engaging with the committee where he gives them vague answers and they push, but he doesn't have to give very much. I think he'll claim privileges, uh, so they'll have some battles on that. I don't think this is a sign he's going to cooperate and tell all. And Jeff, just the federal appeals court hearing arguments uh, about the, the January 6th documents and executive privilege, they didn't issue a ruling today. Do you have any doubts or any sense of where it's going? It, they certainly <clears throat> seem inclined to want to force um, the National Archives to turn over the, these documents. It's not a slam dunk case, however, and several of the judges pointed out that there, this is a novel situation. It's two, two presidents. Two, two presidents, both citing executive privilege, one saying it's okay, one saying it's not to, to turn over the material. The, the argument that we only have one president at a time in this country, he is the custodian of the presidency, the interests of the president, that seemed to be a, a winning argument. And it's also worth pointing out, these were three Democratic appointees on a highly politi- uh, polarized court with very conservative Dem- Republicans, very liberal Democrats. These were three liberal Democrats. I think that also is going to give you a hint of how this case is going to But even if they ruled but, but in December, wouldn't it, the president then try to take it to the Supreme Court? He would try. You know, the, you don't automatically get to go to the Supreme Court. The question of whether the court would give him a stay on this. Um, that's become a huge issue in, in many different cases, in abortion, among other things, about when the Supreme Court steps in and just stops everything. That If he loses in the D.C. Circuit, you can be sure he will hope that the six conservatives on the Supreme Court will give him a stay. John, and as far as you could tell, did, did former President Trump's attorneys actually put forward any new arguments today? Not really. They sort of rehashed what they had done at the lower court. And that's why they were getting some doubt. They were getting some very good questions from the judges uh, who pressed not only Trump's judge or Trump's attorneys, uh, but the government as well. Uh, the House of Representatives lawyer uh, got pushed pretty hard on how to resolve some of these issues when you have uh, a former and an incumbent president. So it's uh, it, to me, I think this is a case that since Trump and his M.O. is to stall, they'll try to get a full court in bonk hearing on this. That'll take a majority of the sitting circuit court, but that'll delay it longer. John, just lastly, you know, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger testifying today said about four hours long. I mean, is there anything new he would have had to tell the committee? I mean, he's written a book about this. He's spoken repeatedly about this since it happened. What new information really would that he have learned or said? I don't think he had a lot new. I've read his book. Uh, he is has a very detailed annotation of his conversation with Trump, his reaction to it. So I don't think this is a lot of new information, but rather a rehash. All right, John Dean. Just one, one more, one more point. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow is the Supreme Court argument on the uh, the big uh, Mississippi abortion case. Huge, huge yeah. issue. Uh, Jeff Tubin, John Dean, appreciated some news now about this network. It involves Chris Cuomo, the host of Cuomo Prime Time. New documents released this week indicated that Chris was more intimately involved than previously known in helping his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, craft a defense amid a flurry of sexual misconduct allegations. Here's a statement released tonight from a CNN spokesperson, quote, The New York Attorney General's office released transcripts and exhibits Monday that shed new light on Chris Cuomo's involvement in his brother's defense. 
The documents, which we were not privy to before their public release, raised serious questions. The spokesperson continued, quote, when Chris admitted to us that he had offered advice to his brother's staff, he broke our rules, and we acknowledge that publicly. But we also appreciated the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first and job second. However, these documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew, the spokesperson added. As a result, we have suspended Chris indefinitely pending further evaluation. Second hour of 360 is right after the break. And good evening. We begin this hour with the fight against COVID and potentially good news from Israel, potentially, specifically the Israeli health minister who said, quote, indications show that people who've received the coronavirus vaccine booster are protected against the new Omicron variant. Now, he didn't offer any specifics beyond that. The health minister added that he'll have more uh, accurate information and uh, detailed information about the efficacy of the vaccine in coming days. In the U.S., the CDC is expanding surveillance at four major airports to keep an eye out for Omicron. And CNN has learned the Biden administration is considering requiring stricter COVID testing for everyone traveling to the U.S. CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly joins us now. So talk about these new measures being considered for travelers heading into the U.S. You know, Anderson, at a moment where I think there's peak uncertainty inside the administration with public health officials in terms of what Omicron will actually bring to the United States, some assumptions it's probably already here at this point in time, is a recognition that they need to constantly be evaluating in real time what precautions they have in place and shift those if they need to. And that's the case here. Tightening, likely tightening, the timeline for all travelers entering the United States. As it currently stands, vaccinated travelers have to have a test within three days of arriving in the United States. The president on Thursday is likely to announce, according to sources, that that timeline will be shifted down to one day, just 24 hours. I think what this is a window into more than anything else is we saw it with the travel restrictions to eight Southern African countries, now potentially shifting the testing requirements for those entering the United States. It's not any sense that they can stop the Omicron variant from arriving in the United States if it's not already here. But what they hope to do is buy themselves time with so much unknown and so much to learn over the course of the next 10 to 14 days. The focus is trying to limit uh, the arrival to the extent that they can to give themselves time to prepare for what may come next. Right now, with all of these unknowns, these administration officials believe are the best options they have to try and accomplish that ambition. Obviously, I mean, it's not only inbound international travelers that the administration is, is concerned about in terms of spreading a new variant. Are there other precautions the administration is considering? You know, when you talk to administration officials, there's obviously been a clear focus both publicly and in constant deliberations going on behind the scenes about how they can increase vaccinations, how they can bump up boosters. You think 60 percent of the U.S. public is vaccinated. Only 20 percent have boosters. They obviously want to ramp that up in the days ahead. But there's also a significant amount of contingency planning underway, according to administration officials, particularly as it pertains to vaccines. There are ongoing discussions with vaccine makers about what a process would look like if they need to update or shift those vaccines based on what they discover from this variant. Also, how to ramp up perhaps doing an, an entire rollout of new vaccines if that becomes a necessity. Also, keep in mind cost assessments. All of that is going into right now what's happening behind the scenes. This is a moment right now where there's no question. Everybody is hoping for the best, picking up anecdotal evidence that they've seen from various countries and hoping that that is borne out in terms of what this variant would mean across the board, but also recognizing that there has to be preparation for the worst. And that more than anything else is what we've seen administration officials focused on. And I think that is what you're going to hear from the president on Thursday as he rolls out his proposals for how to address the pandemic in the weeks and months ahead. Obviously, a winter season coming up, but 
obviously top of mind with everybody, Anderson, is this new variant. Yeah, Phil Madden, I appreciate it. Joining us now is the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins, thanks for being with us. First of all, what do you make out of uh, Israel, what the health minister there said, that there are, quote, indications that show people who have a COVID vaccine booster are protected against the Omicron variant? Again, no real specifics. Is that any different than what we've been hearing for the last several days? Um, not really. I think it is very early days, Anderson, and they're trying to see the first little hints of whether vaccinated people seem to be having an easier time with Omicron than people who weren't. But the numbers are very small, so I would not want anybody to look at that announcement from the, uh, Israel and say, well, now we know the answer. We're going to take several more days, look at lots more cases, try to really size up how much protection is coming from the vaccine and how much could come from the boosters. Do, does South Africa have anything to teach us in terms of that? Because, I mean, Sanjay was showing figures of uh, hospitalization rates in the, the province that Johannesburg is in, which show hospitalizations going up. He said he believed that uh, the majority of those were not vaccinated. People were not vaccinated. I'm not sure if, if that's is that your understanding? Yeah, I think they're still sorting that out. Uh, frankly, South Africa has a huge amount to tell us, and we owe them a debt already for being incredibly transparent about this whole process. Keep in mind, we just learned about this Omicron variant one week ago, and already South Africa has been on the Zoom calls with me uh, at least three times in the last three days, telling us everything they know about what's going on. But they're still collecting the data. Again, it's going to get better. I think what South Africa can tell us in the coming days may very well give us some hints about just how much protection from vaccination and how severe is this particular illness anyway? Is this mild, as some had early suggested, or was that just sort of the luck of the fact that most of the people who got it early on were young and relatively healthy? We don't know the answer to that one yet. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes the situation difficult right now, because, you know, obviously in terms of reporting on it, I always think it's important to point out what we don't know often as sometimes as much as what we do know. And there's a lot we don't know yet. The CEO of Moderna... Was not terribly optimistic today, telling the Financial Times, and I, maybe it sounds like I'm clutching at straws, but there's so much we don't know. Anything that somebody says uh, seems to be worth mentioning and trying to get more information about. So the CEO of Moderna says he thinks there's going to be, quote, a material drop, end quote, in the effectiveness of the Moderna vaccine against Omicron that shook the markets. Do you, A, what do you, I mean, what do you make of that? How do you interpret it? Do you share that level of concern? Um, I think we're all concerned that Omicron has such a large number of mutations, more than 50, that all the things that we've done to try to generate immunity against this virus, this is a somewhat different animal. And we're not sure whether it's going to be as effective as we'd like or not. But the CEO of Moderna doesn't know any more about what that answer is than I do. We're all kind of trying to guess, looking at the letters of the code, how much of a difference is that going to make to the antibodies that the vaccine has generated? I would say, based on what we've learned previously about other variants like Delta, that even when you vaccinate against the original Wuhan strain, and especially then if you give a booster, your immune system is very clever. It not only boosts the level of antibodies, but it boosts the breadth of coverage that they have of spike proteins that your system hasn't even seen before, but is now ready for. And it's that phenomenon, I think, that's going to help us here. That's a reason, by the way, Anderson, why we are all pushing as hard as we can for people who have gotten vaccinated, but not yet boosted to do so. 
And that's a lot of people. And I think people are interested in that, but maybe delayed a little bit. Uh, you heard clearly from CDC, if you're 18 and over, you should get a booster now if it's been six months or more since you got Pfizer or Moderna or two months since you got J&J. This would be a great time to do that, to get us ready. You know, this Omicron variant, it's just a reminder, I think, and, and I think it's an important reminder that no matter what we do in this country, the the weakest link anywhere in the world is going to affect what happens in this country in terms of the health of all of us. And in terms of vaccine distribution, if the world is not vaccinated, if the world is not receiving vaccines and getting them distributed, um, we're vulnerable because it, what what happens in you know, uh, rural Botswana doesn't stay in isolated geographically. It now spreads around the world very quickly. And I'm not saying this happened in Botswana. I'm just picking that country randomly. Well, you're totally right, Anderson. If we needed one more reminder that we are all one family on this planet, here it is. And that viruses don't really care about country boundaries and they spread rapidly. And so, yeah, if we're really serious about protecting against pandemics, we have to think about the whole world, not just our own country. I got to say, the U.S. has done more about this than all the other countries combined. We've already shipped 275 million doses of vaccines to 110 countries, including a lot uh, to Africa. Interestingly, in South Africa, they're having the same problem we are in the U.S. They have enough doses. They just have people who are resistant to using them. This is a big problem for our whole planet, that we have this difficulty with misinformation that is causing people not to take advantage of something life-saving. We've got to address that one, too, and it's not just our country that seems to have the problem. Just lastly, you know, this announcement of increased surveillance taking place at four major U.S. airports. The CDC announced that today, as well as the news that the top government officials are considering having more testing for international travelers, including U.S. citizens. I mean, is that are those is that really effective? Is that just making it sound like we're doing something when there's I mean, what does that mean? Increased surveillance at four airports? I think it means that we have the chance to reduce uh, the number of instances uh, of Omicron or possibly other virus variants coming to our shores. But let nobody imagine that that's fail safe and that's going to stop the process. It will slow it down. It'll reduce the volume of new infections that reach us. It's just good public health practice. It's uh, something I think we all ought to support if we're an international traveler. Yeah, welcome the chance uh, to get tested and make sure you're not infected. Because the problem with this virus is that it's so easy for people to be infected and not know it. That's why this has been such a hard pandemic to control. The testing is our best protection against having such people wandering around infecting other people or infecting them on an airplane, as uh, afraid recently may have happened with that planes, a couple of planes that went to the Netherlands. And, and bottom line, uh, you know, the longer people choose not to get vaccinated, the longer this goes on. I mean, that's the bottom line, isn't it? Anderson, that's the bottom line. And if Americans are tired of this and want to do something about it, as we are all tired of it, this is what you can do. If you're not vaccinated yet, start tomorrow. Go to vaccines.gov. They'll tell you the place near you where it's free. You can get started on your shots. If you are vaccinated and you're eligible for a booster, which is most people who are vaccinated and you haven't done that yet, do that again uh, tomorrow. Vaccines.gov. We have the chance here as a nation to turn this around, but it's going to take all of us. And we haven't quite gotten that kind of unanimous response that this pandemic is calling us to produce. Yeah, I got my booster. It was easy painless, uh, no, no reaction to it. So I, I recommend and urge people to. Dr. Me Francis too. Collins as well. Thank you so much. More breaking news tonight, another mass school shooting in America. How many times have we said that?
Three students dead, a number of others injured. Untold number of families' lives changed forever. A live report with the very latest ahead, plus a witness who was at that high school in Michigan when shots rang out. Also new developments on the January 6th committee's probe for answers about what happened on that horrible day. A key Trump aide apparently cooperating as the panel prepares to vote on another in defiance, similar to Steve Bannon ahead. From what we know tonight, authorities did everything they could as quickly as they could to respond to the shooting today at Oxford High School in Oakland County, Michigan, near Detroit. That's what we're hearing from officials and witnesses and experts in the field. The response time was brief. Everyone did what they'd been trained to do. And yet, those are the two saddest words we know tonight. And yet. Because we're now getting a firsthand look at what these kids went through as a shooter took the lives of their classmates. This is video from inside one of the classrooms as students and their teacher sheltered in, sheltered in place. Heard a voice from the hallway and waited a moment, uncertain whether it was a friendly or hostile voice, then fled to safety. Yes. Safe to come out. Safe to come out. Now we're not willing to take that risk right now. I can't hear you. We're not taking that risk right now. Okay, well, come to the door. Look at my bag, bro. bro. Yeah, bro. He said bro. He said bro. Red flag. Inside Oxford High just a few hours and a lifetime ago. The latest now from CNN's Josh Campbell. Tonight, three students shot and killed at Oxford High School just north of Detroit. Around 1251 today, we received a 911 call of an active shooter at the high school. Deputies immediately responded and uh, we received over 100 911 calls into our dispatch. A 16-year-old boy, a 14-year-old girl, and 17-year-old girl all killed. I'm shocked. It's devastating. The suspect, a 15-year-old sophomore at the high school, firing off what is believed to be around 15 to 20 shots over five minutes. At least eight others were wounded and taken to area hospitals. The majority are in stable condition, with two undergoing surgery. We also have eight others that were shot uh, in various stages at three different hospitals. The president weighing in from Minnesota. My heart goes out to the families enduring the unimaginable grief of losing a loved one. According to authorities, the shooting suspect did not resist arrest, and they believe he acted alone. This is every parent's worst nightmare. No motive has been found, and the shooting suspect's parents tonight have invoked his right not to speak to the police. Josh Campbell joins us now. What more are you learning about the investigation into the shooter? Well, we know from authorities that this is very much still in the early stages. We also know, uh, as was just mentioned, that the suspect's parents went to that sheriff's station invoking his right not to speak with authorities, which, of course, makes their job much more difficult. That's his right. Uh, but they also want to talk to him. They want to interview him. They want to glean important information about why he did this. We do know that they are conducting uh, interviews of witnesses there at the school. They're also scouring the suspect's digital footprint. Uh, tonight, they're also at the home of the shooter. They've conducted a 
search warrant there, trying to glean any possible clue they can to get to the reason why he allegedly brought a firearm to the school today, opening fire on his fellow students, mm -hmm. Anderson. Josh Campbell, Josh, I appreciate it. Joining us now by phone is Abby Hodder. She's a sophomore at Oxford High. Abby, thank you so much for talking with us. I cannot imagine how you are feeling tonight after what you have been through. You, I understand you were in chemistry class. You heard some glass shatter. What happened next? Um, after that, I was a little bit confused, but I was under the impression that uh, some glass had shattered in the chemistry rooms next door to us because it's an average thing to happen. Um, but uh, soon after, I heard what sounded like pop, so I was still a little confused. Uh, uh, then I saw my teacher run out and uh, see, I don't exactly know what happened, but then I heard him initiate our night lock system. And then next thing I knew, I was helping barricading doors with our tables that we have in the rooms. Wow. And, and that's something you've, you've had. I talked to a, another student, a senior earlier uh, this evening, who said that, that he'd been through multiple trainings of that. It, it, you're a sophomore. Has, you've been through these trainings as well? Yes, we've been, uh, I think we've been through these trainings since around seventh or eighth grade. Uh, and that's, I didn't really comprehend what was going on, but I, once we started pushing like tables, I kind of understood what was happening just you, because of our training. I mean, this is a dumb question, but, but I mean, were you scared? Did it, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, a situation like this, it made, it doesn't feel real. Uh, yeah, at first it was a little surreal and I just kind of prioritized the safety of me and the, uh, 20 or so or, uh, kids in the classroom. And I just started helping with pushing tables. But then once we stopped and sat down and there was nothing else we could do besides like hold things to prepare to throw them, uh, we, it didn't really set in and I really started getting scared. And at some point, I understand your teacher told all the students to to escape out a window of the classroom and, and run. Yeah. Um, yes, he knew that one of the windows didn't have like a screen on it just so that airflow could get in during the hotter days. Um, and he, from like knowing that the shooter was close, we knew that it was a better idea. And it was also part of the Alice training to evacuate if possible. So we all just slowly hopped out a window one by one and started to run towards the mire that was nearby. I mean, you've had a few hours now to think back on this. How are you doing tonight? Uh, it's a little surreal. I'm still kind of coming to terms with all that has happened. And I don't even know most of the story. So it's just kind of slow and surreal at this point. Yeah. Abby, I appreciate you, you talking with us tonight. It's not easy. I appreciate you, you taking the time, and I wish you the best. Yes, no problem. Okay, take care. Coming up next, we'll uh, have more on the, the shooting as uh, develops. As develops, Also more on the January 6th uh, investigation. One high-profile possible cooperator, one high-profile non-cooperator, and a court case hanging over it all. That's all oral arguments today. The January 6th Select Committee spoke to one crucial witness today and obtained the potential cooperation of a second. The first, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, tells us he talked with the panel for roughly four hours. He's of interest, obviously, for the conversation he had with the former president, who asked him, you'll recall, to find him enough votes to win the state. 
Raffensperger refused because there weren't. As for the potential cooperator, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, he's now the highest profile member of the former Trump inner circle, known to be working at least in some capacity, and exactly how much cooperation is giving is unknown at this point, with the committee. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson telling us that Meadows has already produced about 6,000 emails he's scheduled for deposition next week. Now, this comes as another high-profile witness, a former Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, is refusing to talk and could be cited for contempt tomorrow. He's citing the former president's executive privilege case now before a federal appeals court, which heard oral arguments today. Now, here's some of the skeptical questioning they gave the former president's attorney, who's arguing that President Biden improperly waived privilege over documents now at the National Archives. You're going to have to come up with something more powerful that's going to outweigh the incumbent president's decision to waive, right? You're going to have to change the score on that scoreboard. It seemed that the current president has not only the confidentiality factor that he's thinking about, but uh, the current duty to um, the interests of the United States. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen, who served as special counsel to House Democrats in the first impeachment of the former president, as well as ambassador to the Czech Republic during the Obama administration. Ambassador Eisen, are you surprised that Meadows has reached this deal for initial cooperation with the committee? And again, we don't know exactly what level of cooperation he will actually have be giving. Uh, Anderson, thanks for having me back. No, I'm not surprised because um, all of these events that happened today are tied together uh, by uh, the simple proposition that... Uh, Current presidents have the power over executive privilege, over whether or not documents or testimony can be heard. Former presidents do not. So uh, Meadows was looking at the same fate as Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, who's been criminally charged with contempt for his refusal to cooperate. He doesn't want the uh, charges, the uh, litigation uh, and the possible conviction on his record. Uh, he knows that there's no executive privilege grounds to withhold, so he started cooperating. You've said the courts are not buying the former president's argument about, about executive privilege, but what if the strategy is just to keep arguing about privilege until Congress potentially changes hands? Um, Anderson, the, the good news in this pattern of events is that not only are the courts rejecting the president's legal arguments, but they're rejecting his patented delay strategies, which we saw deployed against us in the litigation related to the impeachment. Uh, this case has been uh, moving on a rocket docket. Uh, when they heard oral argument today, um, it was just 21 days after the uh, lower court also rejected Trump's claims. They were very skeptical. In Watergate, we went from the subpoena for the Watergate tapes to a Supreme Court decision in a little over three months. That's possible here, too. So that's very bad news for Trump. And you have Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger's testimony. I mean, do you believe anything about his communications with the former president will come out of that testimony that hasn't already been reported or detailed in you know, his book or, or on television already? Um, Anderson, um, the uh, uh, facts of the Raffensperger communication are known. We don't know exactly what questions he was asked, what documents he was shown, what new information. One of those 6,000 Mark Meadows emails, for example, might have some 
a piece of information. Raffensperger has shown that document and he um, he says something new. So uh, it's critically important because that is the avenue. That is probably the single thing that Donald Trump did that is most likely to land him in uh, criminal trouble. You can't say, as he did to Raffensperger, just find 11,780 votes that don't exist. That's a potential Georgia criminal trial, uh, criminal matter. And we have an aggressive and effective Georgia DA who's looking at it. And the January 6th committee is expected to begin contempt proceedings against the former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark tomorrow. His lawyer is claiming Clark gave former President Trump confidential legal advice, a quote, sacred trust, and is therefore covered by executive privilege. Uh, Anderson, again, as the as the uh, court said when uh, the trial court said when they ruled against Trump's claims, um, uh, the United States uh, has uh, presidents, presidents, not kings, and Donald Trump is not president. The uh, former president has no power to instruct Clark to do that. And in fact, the current president has said that Clark may testify. So that argument just won't hold water. Norm Eisen, appreciate it. Thanks. Ahead, the moment that the anti-abortion movement worked decades to reach, the Supreme Court will hear a case that could effectively strip away the legal protection of Roe v. Wade. The only abortion clinic left in one state is part of this fight as well. That clinic's owner is here to tell us what happens if her side loses the case next. In just hours, the Supreme Court will begin hearing arguments what could be the most important abortion rights case since Roe v. Wade. In fact, justices could effectively hollow out that landmark 1973 law affirming a woman's right to end her pregnancy. This case centers around a Mississippi law barring most abortions after only 15 weeks. Under Roe, abortions are protected to the point a fetus can live outside the mother's womb about 22 to 24 weeks. Diane Durzis owns the Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's the only remaining abortion clinic in Mississippi, and it's party to the suit. Diane, thanks very much for joining us. What are your hopes and expectations for how tomorrow may go? I know you can't be there in the courtroom because of COVID precautions, but there are there particular justices whose reactions to the arguments you'll be anxious to hear? Uh, I think definitely uh, Justice Roberts, but uh, the fact still is there that we have a court that is distinctly made up of anti-choice justices. So that's certainly uh, our biggest fear. There's the dispute, obviously, over the Mississippi law, then the larger question of whether the court, if it allows that law to stand, would then take an additional step of actually overturning Roe v. Wade. How likely do you think that is? I think it's extremely likely. Um, You know, any upholding anything other than uh, viability is still the standard uh, certainly over, overturns or hollows out, as you said, Roe. If the Mississippi law is allowed to stand, what would be the immediate impact of your clinic? Well, we have uh, on the books, I think 12 other states do as well, um, an automatic trigger that abortion would become illegal. It's still on the books and has been since then. So that is, um, that's the immediate danger. And if you win and the court allows the law to remain in effect, what do you think it means not just for Mississippi, but for, for the nation? Well, uh, if, if Roe is still found to exist, I mean, that is certainly a major win. Uh, but you have to ask, why would a court decide to hear this case if that's what they planned on doing? Can you just talk about the, the clients that you have, what you're hearing from them, um, what this means, I mean, just in practical terms? 
You know, you know Anderson, since Texas uh, went down several months ago, we've been besieged by uh, women coming from other states. So we are now open uh, four to five days a week instead of our original three. You know, they're, they're terrified. You know, the, the fact that we are now telling a woman that she does not have this option uh, in her state and that she has to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to obtain medical care, uh, it, it's unbelievable. You know, for, for women of privilege, this is not a problem. Women who have had money have always had the ability to obtain an abortion. But you're talking of poor white women, black women, brown women, and you're talking about women who have to take off work, who have to find childcare, who have to find the money to travel uh, distances, that it's absolutely incredulous that we have reached a time where this is reality. And I understand that, that the people who work at your clinic meet regularly with members of the FBI to discuss, discuss security concerns. The court case, has it caused increased threats? I think it's certainly caused the uh, anti-choice people to, I mean, you know, they're on a win and a roll here. So they've certainly been far more aggressive than they have been in the past. Um, you know, while the anti-choice people are winning, however, um, those of us in the clinic realize that we are in a much safer position than we normally are. Mm. Diane Durzis, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, a woman who says she was sexually assaulted by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell takes the stand in Maxwell's sex trafficking trial. Plus, Epstein's former pilot named some of the powerful people who flew on his plane. Jeffrey Epstein's former pilot named names today during his testimony in Ghislaine Maxwell's sex trafficking trial. The pilot, who was employed by Epstein for nearly 30 years, testified he flew many famous people, including former President Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Kevin Spacey, and even renowned violinist Itzhak Perlman. Also taking the stand today, one of Epstein and Maxwell's alleged victims. The woman, identified only as Jane, described how she met the couple at a performing arts camp and how they abused her over a number of years, starting when she was only 14 years old. Randy Kay joins us now. So what else happened in court, Randy? Well, that woman uh, who they were calling Jane uh, was just a young girl back in 1994, Anderson, when she testified about this uh, chance meeting, really, as she put it at this summer camp, this arts camp in uh, in Michigan. She says that uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell came upon her at a picnic table with some friends. Uh, they started talking to her. And when they all realized that they were from uh, the Palm Beach, Florida area, they asked her for her phone number. Now, the prosecutor said uh, she described them as predators uh, in the fact that they were asking her for her phone number. And then later she told the court that when she got back to Florida, uh, that she was contacted by Maxwell and Epstein and that Maxwell began talking to her about sex. And she was inviting her over to Jeffrey Epstein's home, uh, his mansion there in Palm Beach, Florida. And she testified that uh, Jeffrey Epstein told her that he could introduce her to talent agents and that then next thing she knew, he was taking her to her, his pool house where he, she says that he took down his pants and pulled her on top of him while he was masturbating. He also said she also testified that she was terrified and ashamed. She had never seen anything like uh, what she saw 
uh, on that day. She described uh, similar incidents as well, saying that he uh, he touched her in her private areas uh, and that she was also forced to touch him. She said it included oral sex and intercourse. Uh, so obviously, Anderson, uh, this is very disturbing. The, the defense in this case for Ghislaine Maxwell said that none of this was true and that they said they told the jury that they should really doubt the credibility uh, of this woman, Jane Anderson. And there was also this pilot, this former pilot of Jeffrey Epstein, who testified uh, he had been a pilot for Epstein for nearly 30 years. And he said, as you mentioned, that he flew many of these uh, celebrities on board the plane, including uh, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump before he was president, uh, Prince Andrew, uh, Maine Senator George Mitchell, Ohio Senator John Glenn, uh, and also the actor Kevin Spacey. He said that he didn't he never saw any. Uh, type of uh, activity involving uh, sex on the airplanes uh, for Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, he said that he never saw any sex toys, uh, never saw the, uh, the young uh, women on the plane uh, being disrobed or anything like that. Uh, but he also said that the pilot door was closed uh, a lot of the time, the cockpit door. So uh, it's unclear what went on on these airplanes. But obviously, the, the passenger logs, Anderson, are key to this investigation so they can try and figure out who was on these planes, who might have been a part of this uh, sex trafficking ring that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was allegedly involved with Jeffrey Epstein. But I should also note, Anderson, that none of the high-profile passengers who we mentioned uh, are, are alleged to have done anything wrong or have any involvement in this case, uh, this ongoing trial right now, Anderson. And, and was the pilot uh, able to identify any of the alleged victims? It's interesting. He, was, he did say in court uh, that he testified that he flew Jeffrey Epstein to this uh, arts camp in Michigan, where Epstein was apparently a benefactor. And what's interesting is that is that is the very same arts camp where this woman they're calling Jane, who was a young girl at the time, uh, placed Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, saying that that's where she uh, met the two of them, was at that very same arts camp uh, in Michigan. He also said that he believed he met uh, this woman they're calling Jane, on an airplane uh, back in the 1990s on one of Jeffrey Epstein's airplanes. He said that Epstein introduced him to her. Uh, he wasn't clear if she flew on the plane, but she was on the plane at that time uh, before they took off from Palm Beach, Florida, Anderson. All right, Randy, thanks very much. Joining us now is criminal defense attorney Sarah Azari and CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Laura Coates. So, Laura, in her testimony, Jane uh, really described in detail how Maxwell and Epstein befriended, as Randy was saying, groomed her uh, she says, before the abuse began. How impactful are backstories like that, along with the, the kind of details that she provided today? I think Laura wasn't having her IFB. Sarah, let me start with you. The defense is using the fact that this accuser is an actor to try and frame her as someone who's playing a role and change her story because of money. Do you, is that, that's basically the, the strategy to, to try to just hurt her credibility? Yeah, Anderson, you know, we heard in opening statements that the defense case is going to be about money manipulation and memory. And on cross-examination, the defense went right into money. The idea that um, this particular uh, accuser has recovered about $5 million from the Epstein a Victim Compensation Fund. Um, the idea that if Maxwell is convicted, she could potentially get more money. Um, so that is absolutely probably the strongest thing that the defense has because the, the idea that she delayed reporting, I think they kind of went into that as well. Delayed reporting, um, you know, not having a memory of exactly how many times Maxwell touched her, uh, the defense better not go there, Anderson, because as someone who has tried dozens and dozens of these cases, I can tell you that it's a big failure. There's going to be a uh, psychological expert, child sex abuse expert who's going to come in and explain 
why a victim of sexual abuse, especially a vulnerable minor, would wait, would fear reporting. Hmm. And Laura, I, I think we have you now. I mean, in her testimony, Jane mm -hmm. described how Maxwell and Epstein befriended her. Randy talked about that and and have, kind of groomed her before the abuse actually began. I'm wondering what you made of her testimony. Well, it was very compelling because, of course, it corroborated in, in part one of the initial witnesses, the pilot, to talk about how Epstein was more of a benefactor. He was using that as um, one way to describe him. Now, of course, he was a prosecution witness, so you want that to essentially prove that he had this guise, this disguise as a benefactor in a way to try to lure and entice people and had this duplicitous nature. And so her statements did support and corroborate that. But to echo what Sarah said, I have tried many delays reporting sexual assault cases. And the idea behind them as a prosecutor is to make sure that the jurors understand that there are reasons to delay. There may be fear, there may be other aspects of it, to try to appeal to the notion that this is actually so traumatic that the memory is fully intact here. And so every detail that she will be able to remember, there might be some that are going to be less clear than others, but they're trying to overall give a theme that this person over a course of a period of time was pursued, was groomed by Epstein's partner in crime, who is standing trial right now. So, sir, do you think, I mean, that's the, the, basically overall through this trial, the, the defense is just going to go after each, each of the alleged victims? Is, is there more to their defense? Well, I think there's a few different parts to the defense here, Anderson. I think, number one, they're going to go after the accusers uh, for the money that they recovered as a motive why they were, would fabricate or, or exaggerate. Um, they're also going to uh, bring in Elizabeth Loftus, who I've uh, used on a case who is very renowned uh, as a memory expert. Um, and she's going to testify about why their memory is distorted and contaminated over the course of decades, um, why their testimony is not reliable. Now, I have to say that she has testified in a number of high-profile trials, all of which have led to convictions, but her testimony is very compelling. And of course, these allegations date back to the 90s, so it's a long time ago. Mm. Um, but, but to Laura's point, you know, I thought, Anderson, the, the pilots, um, the prosecution's choice of putting the pilot up first was rather odd. I don't think it helped the prosecution. It didn't hurt them, but it certainly didn't help them. Um, he never saw any sexual activity. He never could identify any girls that were underage, you know? And, and so, um, you know, as lawyers, as trial lawyers, we go by the theory of primacy and decency, uh, primacy and recency, which means that we put our best witnesses first and last. And I don't think the pilot quite, he was more of a foundational witness. I don't think he really helped the prosecution much. Laura, I mean, do you think the defense would put Maxwell on the stand? Well, you know, she's facing, what, more than 70 years in prison. And, of course, their whole theme in this defense, they even made sort of a biblical reference and said since the time when Eve gave Adam the apple, they've been trying to answer for the actions of men, trying to use this as an opportunity to suggest that she's been scapegoated. He, of course, died in an apparent suicide prior to her even being charged with a crime. And so they're trying to weave this story in this theme that says she is a victim here. She's a victim of an overzealous prosecution. They couldn't get the person that they wanted, so they're going to try to use her. So if she takes the stand, she'll try to present an, um, an air and a demeanor that conveys that level of victimization, that she was not a partner in crime, but her demeanor, her tone, the way in which she relays what she knows about the events that take place will be so important 
important because if they are going to, as prosecutors, use memory as a way to try to, um, you know, buttress the credibility of their witnesses and the defense conversely will try to undermine the memory of these witnesses, they have to be very careful about the way in which she's able to relay with specificity what she does not remember or did not know or did not do. And so it can be a double-edged sword, her mere presence on that stand. But in the courtroom, I mean, if her theme is that she is the one having to answer for what she did not do, taking the stand will be one of the ways in which she could compel and persuade this jury to find it that same way. Sarah, do you think she'll take the stand? Look, the golden rule is don't put your client up, don't put the defendant up unless you absolutely must and you can't make your case, uh, you know, otherwise. Um, and I, I don't think the defense needs to make that decision now, Anderson. I think mm. they can wait until the prosecution rests and see how the case goes. Um, but it is a double-edged sword, as Laura said. You know, one of the issues also with Maxwell is that um, there were two perjury charges in this superseding indictment that were severed from this trial. Um, but, but you know, the facts are still there that in 2016, she testified under oath and there's allegations that she lied about mm. uh, knowledge of Epstein's sexual activity. So um, that is sort of a, a concern uh, right. in terms of the prosecution impeaching her. Yeah, Sarah Zari, appreciate it. Laura Coates, as always, thank you so much. Up next on this Giving Tuesday, how you can support this year's top 10 CNN heroes. I'm Anderson Cooper. Each of this year's top 10 CNN heroes proves that one person really can make a difference. And again, this year we're making it easy for you to support their great work. Just go to CNNHeroes.com, click donate beneath any 2021 top 10 CNN hero to make a direct contribution to that hero's fundraiser on GoFundMe. You'll receive an email confirming your donation, which is tax deductible in the United States. No matter the amount, you can make a big difference in helping our heroes continue their life-changing work. And right now, through January 3rd, your donations will be matched dollar for dollar up to a total of $500,000. CNN is proud to offer you this simple way to support each cause and celebrate all these everyday people changing the world. You can donate from your laptop, your tablet, or your phone. Just go to CNNHeroes.com. Your donation in any amount will help them help others. Thank you. And of course, all our top 10 CNN heroes will be honored at the 15th annual CNN Heroes All-Star Tribute. I'll be hosting along with my buddy Kelly Ripa, live Sunday, December 12th. Hope you tune in and be inspired. That's it for us right now. The news continues. Let's turn things over to Don and Don Lemon tonight. Don? Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.